she got quiet. Drawing a deep breath, exhaling it slowly, mustering up her voice. She said, be glad you got married when you did. Because dating in 2018 is really hard. Gone are the days of personal ads, mixers. What remains? Applications on phones. Turning people's potential attraction into nothing more than a meat market. Back in the day, when online dating first came around, eHarmony was the answer to the meat market. It was a process where you were matched, not first on look, but on psychological dimensions of relational compatibility. So the tagline goes. But in having to keep up with the times, even eHarmony had to succumb to the desire of instantaneous matching and communicating. What was in it in that revolution that the 60s kicked off? Free love, a free for all where bodies are exchanged and life is lived to its fullest. And yet, and yet, if you look now on some of the more thoughtful places, you're finding some people saying that maybe, just maybe, it's actually doing more damage than good. People are giving themselves away and finding at the end of the day they're not quite as whole as they once were. The church, of course, tried to answer this in various shapes and in various ways, but I remember back in the 90s when the purity movement was big, pledges were signed, agreements were entered into, promises were made. Promises that when something like this, if you wait and save yourself or your husband or your wife, not only will you be living the way God intended the world to operate, but as a Christian, you'll experience the best of what's around. The problem is I see people in my office all the time who said, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I thought marriage and the pleasure and the joy and the intimacy of marriage was supposed to be a delight. 
I just feel lonely. The problem, friends, is that whether you are the hedonist living for your best life now or the moralist who says, as long as we do things God's way, it's going to be the best of what it can be. What Ecclesiastes tells you is it both ends up in the same place. Absurdity. Meaningless. These are hard words, but here's the thing, friends. If we don't hear the hard words, we can't deal with the good words. If we don't hear, if we don't reckon with, if we don't process, if we don't deal with the hard lesson one that is Ecclesiastes, it's going to be very difficult to hear the good word of the rest of the scriptures. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The teacher has said, well, if wisdom can't answer my questions, maybe pleasure can. Let's hear what the preacher says. Stand, if you would, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was absurdity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what, uh, till, till I may, might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was absurdity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, help us put this world to the test. Help us to see that it's not the end, it's the means. Unclasp our hands from the things that we grab onto so tightly. 
And instead, may our hands feel the firm grasp of the Father who loved us and sought us and saved us by sending his Son to rescue us. Forgive the one who preaches his sins for their many. Our desire is to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. Let's recap a few things. In chapter 1, we're given the words of a narrator who are introducing us to our speaker, the preacher, the teacher. And he turns the microphone over in chapter 1, verse 8, and the teacher lays out his diary all the way from chapter 1, verse 8 to chapter 12, verse 7. And if you read the teacher's diary, because it's not, it's not like a lab report. It's not like a, a, a scientific journal. It reads more like a diary. Dear diary, day one, everything's absurd. I'll try and figure it out. Dear diary, day two, I tried figuring it out. I couldn't. Maybe pleasure will hold something. Day three. Dear diary, I tried pleasure too. Same result. Now Ecclesiastes is a different book. And we've said that this is going to be kind of a slow build. It's difficult because it doesn't give us feel-good messages and walk-away principles that we can go, yes, a principle through which I can understand my life. Well, it does in part. It just doesn't give you the whole story. As my friend Patrick said when he preached on Ecclesiastes, he said, these are fit words, they're just not final words. And as I've said over the last couple of weeks, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect. It is instructive, it's just incomplete. And so we think about pleasure, and, and, and the teacher lays out a parade of pleasures to think about, a parade of pleasures to consider. So as we begin looking at this parade of pleasures, I want to think about something that struck me as an overarching theme of this text. Zach Eswine says in his book that the Bible raises a question in Ecclesiastes 2 that every human being asks, is there a thing in the world that can truly satisfy the heart of a human being. Now, when I say satisfy, I don't mean enjoy. I mean quench. I mean satisfy. He goes on and he says, the preacher is not the prodigal son that Jesus teaches us about. Though they both will come to similar conclusions, their motives and purposes are distinct. The prodigal gorges on pleasure because he believes that this is his right. He sells what belongs to him in order to get women or drink or friends for happiness. The preacher, in contrast seems to doubt whether this interior hole in his life can find anything to fill it. By wisdom, he tests his theory 
and weathers the truth of it. Here's, here's the line that I want you to think about with me for just a moment. The prodigal consumes what is under the sun. The preacher contends with it. The prodigal consumes what's under the sun. The preacher contends with it. And right away, he gives you the conclusion of his findings in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was absurdity. This was vanity. This was a vapor. Why? Because to enjoy oneself is to drink in what only the self can provide. To enjoy oneself is to drink in that which only the self can provide. So what pleasures did he put to the test? He put to the test jokes, laughter, drink, art, nature, money, possessions, music, physical intimacy. So let's go through it. Let's read his diaries, read his journal. Let's find out what he experienced. Because the first one in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? So how can laughter be bad? <laughs> right? This from one who my most of my most of my books that are not um related to theology or history or or scripture or or the church or practical ministry frankly are written by comedians and this has been the case my whole life one of my first comedians that i ever read was a southern columnist by the name of louis grizzard louis grizzard wrote for the atlanta journal constitution he lived in macon georgia um, and he wrote a bunch of books all with ridiculous titles such as if love if 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 Oh, shoot, now I'm going to forget it. That's not the title. That's just me. We're forgetting things. <laughs> if love were oil, I'd be about a quart low. Shoot low, boys. They're riding Shetland ponies. <laughs> There's a lot of others, but I'm not going to embarrass myself anymore. Um, laughter can be a cover for deep hurt, Why do you think I went to books of comedians? Laughter was cover for deep hurt. Laughter can also be cover for deep sin. Laughter can be our escape. Now, you've all experienced this, having people around you um, who, have, uh, who are constantly cracking jokes, constantly laughing, even even at times that feel somewhat inappropriate? Or laughter can be used to keep relationships from growing and going deeper, right? Because let's face it, if you've got that one friend that's always laughing, always telling jokes, always making light, yeah, they can be great to go out to eat with, 
They can be fun to go out and have a night on the town with. But can you talk to them about anything else? Or, or maybe, maybe you, maybe you're that friend. The one who evades and avoids by constantly making things funny. Laughter can be a poor substitute for mourning sin. Laughter can be the ultimate jab as the person who cracks the joke at your expense says, oh, lighten up. Didn't you know I was just joking? Well, no, because your joking face and your serious face look exactly the same. Laughter can be a blessing, but it can also veil us from experiencing the world for the fullness of what it is being a world that is east of Eden, right? No longer are we in a world where God and man walk freely together in the garden. Man completely uh, unclothed and unashamed. And God and man having no chasm separating them. Fellow man and fellow man having no chasm separating them. No longer are we in that world because the angel dropped his sword and closed the gate to the garden. And we now live east of Eden and have to contend with a world that doesn't operate the way it was designed. God's good creation marred by sin, being redeemed, but in tension between what is and what yet shall be. As Zach Eswine says, laughter cannot save. It too needs a savior. The preacher turns his heart then to cheer his body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Now, we've all experienced the effects of alcohol in our lives. Even if you're not, even if you've never partaken of it yourself. You've been around people who have. You've seen the good and you've seen the ugly. You've seen people abuse it. Some of you have seen people abuse you. You've seen and experienced people who over imbibe and make fools of themselves, who hurt themselves. And, and so the church, again, offers, tries to offer an answer to this. We've experienced the effects of, uh, of prohibition, the temperance movement, uh, teetotalers, if you're from the South, um, and the like. But here's the thing. The Bible, the Bible doesn't forbid drink. It's a gift. It is something that gladdens the hearts. 
But to get buzzed, to get happy, still leads to want. Even those who would be controlled, temperate, measured in their drink, still have to deal with the next day once it's all said and done. Down in verse 8, the teacher speaks of his many women who have been his conquests, used for the physical pleasure that they brought him. And as I alluded in my opening illustration, our answer is to say that if pleasure is done God's way, we can enjoy untainted within the context of marriage. But friends, the person that you give yourself to in marriage is the person who leaves their cereal bowl unrinsed or their laundry scattered or their arguments unresolved. The lingering tension of living together over many years, even when we can move past all of that and still enjoy all that God has blessed us with, with our spouse, we still awaken the next day to bills and rush hour and toil. In verses 4 through 6. We see the joys of cultivation. Listen to what the teacher says. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So again, remove from your view um, the excesses that were made famous back in the day of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Um, even those were modest means that um, even those with modest means can still take great care and delight in their lawns or their homes or their art or their creations or through their artistry, the ways they contribute in the world. You don't have to have um, you don't have to have the preacher's um, excesses in order to still make much out of what you do have. There are people that live in studio apartments they can still say, look at what I've done. But even with our art, to offer all as Bach did, to God alone be the glory, even our art is still fleeting. Do you understand that uh, had it not been for, uh, had it not been for Felix Mendelssohn going through Europe going to a fishmonger and getting his fresh fish that we would have even known about Bach. He unwraps his fish and finds Bach's music had been used as wrapping for the fish. It's Mendelssohn that we know of who Bach was at all. And now Bach is considered to be one of the most... uh, um, one of the standard bearers by which we evaluate all other music, who wrote at the end of his art, Solideo Gloria, to God alone be the glory, his art was used as fish wrapping. It's fleeting. Even the most beautiful is fleeting. Some of you who know that in my former life I was a choir director. 
being a being a musician and um, having the Lord's Day be your day that you work is tough. If you wonder why um, it is such a gift for Neha and for John and for Ken and for Melissa and Daniel and Anna Marie and others to give of their gifts every week because they're not actually fully able to participate in worship because they're having to make sure that they know where the next chord is, where the next note is, where the next word is, right? So every now and again, though, something happens and something clicks and you have that moment and you're like, that was awesome, and then it's gone. Those fleeting moments. And it becomes like a drug almost. You want to get back to that moment. You want to live for that moment. You want to find that moment again because even beauty in and of itself is fleeting. It doesn't last. It's temporal. In verses 7 through 8, the teacher sought to acquire possessions people as possessions, property as possessions. And wouldn't you know it, it left his heart empty. And what does he conclude? It's a passage that we won't directly touch on, but later in Ecclesiastes, he says this. He says, he in Ecclesiastes 5, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also absurdity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Everything goes. You can't save it. All of it, all of it is fleeting. The high that we chase, whether our intentions are aspirational or addictive, the high that we chase is the high that we can't recapture. The feeling that we're trying to recover, but we can't. Why can't we? That's the thing that we need to turn to now. We've seen this parade of pleasures. Why? Short point two. Um, because a lot of what we've said is hearing kind of the, the absurdity that the preacher wants us to see. The issue for many of us is that we have taken in this lie that we can enjoy a slice of heaven as it is going to be here on earth now. Okay? Now, I don't mean to say that the pleasures of this world are not good gifts from God. And I don't mean to say that you will never, ever find any enjoyment in them. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that life will always leave you wanting, whether you are a Christian or not. This is not, again, one of those sermons that's given to those poor unchurched, heathen people that don't know Jesus. If you think that the church is thus immune from feeling the want and the emptiness of this world, you are mistaken. You probably know it, you just don't want to admit it. If you're married, you have felt lonely. If you've over-imbibed, you've been hungover. 
If you've seen magnificent architecture and beautiful art, it was impressive one moment, but now it's just a memory. Even the best pleasures, toys, games, indulgences, within their proper use and within their proper context are still incomplete because the world that we live in still groans for the day of its full redemption. That's why everything still leaves us wanting. Even the good things, even the right things, even the good and the right things done in the good and the right way. It still leaves us wanting. They aren't enough because they can't be enough. Here's what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things that this world uh, can offer to give to you, but they never quite keep their promises. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality of it all. So we do ourselves a great disservice when we think, well, if I just enjoy pleasure in the right way, it will really fill all the longings that I still wrestle with. The wise will die like the fool. The drunkard will die like the temperate. Foolish intimacy and covenantal intimacy still wanes in its joys. Morality and license neither give nor restore the shalom that was lost in the fall. The preacher wants us to feel the weight, the sadness, the emptiness of this. To see that we as people east of Eden and awaiting redemption can no longer be satisfied with the joys that God has given us. And then in turn, death comes and renders all of it sheer absurdity and God let it be that way. But then, God did something else. The Father sent his Son into the world to resist the pleasures of this life and to fulfill the purposes of God for our salvation. Everything that the preacher pursued, Jesus was tempted by. But he resisted them. And this Jesus now offers himself as the source of all satisfaction. Because laughter and jokes and alcohol and art and nature and money and possessions and music and intimacy and, aff and affirmation all find their ultimate, proper, and satisfying fulfillment in the kingdom that is to come. And those things give us glimpses here and now, not as ends, but as means to point to the one whose kingdom shall have no end. If you think that your marriage 
was ever meant to fully satisfy you, you're using your spouse in a way that'll crush them. If you think that your art was ever meant to satisfy you or fully express you, you're using it in ways that it was never designed to be used. If you think that laughter is the ultimate way to escape the sorrows of the world, you have already found out that to be not true. You see, all of these pleasures and all these good gifts are not bad. They're just not ends. They're means. They point us to something bigger and greater and grander than ourselves. And so for the church to answer and say, no, resist it all, is not biblical. For the world to say, sure, imbibe it all, is a dead end. Now think what's interesting. I've always just been struck by this quote. It's from a nerdy journal article, and you just need to bear with me because it's just amazing. I've quoted parts of it before, but Peter Lightheart says, especially in Jesus' teaching, the renewed and fulfilled creation that is the kingdom of God takes the specific form of a feast. Jesus used the image of the feast more than any other to describe the reality of his kingdom. He promised the disciples they would sit on thrones and have table fellowship in the kingdom, told the believing centurion that many would come from the east and west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and told the parable of a king inviting reluctant guests to a banquet. When John the Baptist wanted to distinguish his ministry from that of Jesus, he called Jesus the bridegroom whose coming marked the beginning of the joyful wedding celebration. The omega point toward which history is moving is the wedding feast of the Lamb, the concrete embodiment of eschatological shalom. See, That's a phrase you can use at a dinner party and impress people. The concrete embodiment of eschatological, that which is future, shalom, peace, right? In short, this is the way the world ends. Neither with a bang nor whimper, but with the laughter of a wedding feast. The pleasures that the teacher tested himself with were all never meant to satisfy. They were meant to point him to the source of satisfaction. Do you know what a luxury is? A luxury is something you don't need. You just want it. Do you know what God did? He spent lavishly on a luxury. He didn't need you and I. He wanted you and I. And so he sent Jesus to ransom you and I. 
Friends, there will come a time in which all tears will be wiped away when we hear the laughter of the wedding feast, when joy will be within our hearts. And the same Jesus who said he will not drink of the vine again until we are together at the feast, together will pop the cork. And there will be no sorrow for all sad things have been made untrue. But that day is not yet. That doesn't mean that we don't find joy and pleasure in the fleeting moments of this life, but we know that the fleeting pleasures and moments of of this life groan still with the waiting of anticipation of the day that is to come. It means we're not home yet. I've been thinking a lot about Rich Mullins. One of his songs, If I Stand. If I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will hold me through. And if I can't, let me fall in the grace that first brought me to you. If I sing, let me sing with the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. Dear friends, pleasures don't become fulfilling when they're wrapped up in Jesus' name. Pleasures can only fill what has been made to overflow in Christ Jesus. For until our satisfaction is in Jesus alone, our sin-soaked hearts will still try to make the gifts the substitute for the giver. And that's the most absurd thing of all.